Hello, everyone, and welcome to Long Story Short, a podcast where we review two-sided topics on the minds of college students and condense them into informative, civil, 30 minutes or less in order to create wider campus discussions. episode women in the draft the united states military system of selective services in which all men of legal age are required to register for the armed forces the selective services system then works to keep track of all eligible men in case of national emergency recently questions have been raised within congress about whether women should also be required to register for this draft or not today with us is spencer hurley he is currently a sergeant in the usmc and he joined the armed forces in 2013 and chose to do infantry he has been deployed four times, three times as a sniper platoon member, eventually working his way up to a sniper team leader. He decided to make a career out of the military, then got selected to be part of the MECEP program, which essentially allows him to go to school on active duty and earn his commission as an officer while he helps out the ROTC program. He is currently studying in political science and uses the pronouns he, him, and his. How are you doing today, Spencer? I'm doing well. Thanks for the intro. Yeah. We were talking a little bit earlier. You said that you want to get something out of the way first off, and I want to give you the space to do that. Of course. Thanks. Um, goes without saying I'm, I'm active duty military. With that in mind, any opinions that I express are not those of the Department of Defense. I'm strictly here in the capacity, uh, intellectual capacity as a student. So that's that's the extent of my comments. Awesome. Thank you so much. Don't want to get, don't want to get you in too much trouble. You know? <laughs> um, so just starting off, how has the draft been used historically? Uh, so from my, my knowledge, it started off in 1917 uh, during World War I. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson, I believe, he made a mandate to see if we could uh, get a million troops in the Army on the onset of World War I in 1917. The Army didn't meet that requirement, so he started the first draft. And that was like mandatory service obligation, and that, of course, was only for males. Throughout multiple wars uh, since then, leading up to now, it's undergone a lot of a lot of changes. And I think we can all remember historically the last time the draft was really big was in Vietnam. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, opposition to it. It's undergone a lot of changes since then. And, and what we have now is the selective service system, which colloquially we still call it a draft. But really what it is, it's just a pool that our government can rely on should Congress choose to enact another draft. Nowadays, we don't have a draft anymore, barring any large-scale military conflict where an act of Congress would start another draft. Right now, we just have a system in place where, where males have to, at age 18, register with the Selective Service uh, System, which basically is just giving them that opportunity should they need a draft. And you're saying, hey, this is me. This is where I live. I'm available for that. But as of now, we have all all volunteer military. And you said it have to be... It kind of started as a mass scale war. That'd be the only way that the draft would be reenacted using the selective service pool. From my understanding, historically, what we have now is uh, conflicts now are, are generally um, much more small, small scale. You know, we haven't had a world war really since World War II. And then we had the Cold War, which was kind of that impending global conflict that never really materialized. Right now, we have a, a military of approximately 1.3 million active duty service members. And that's beyond the 1 million that Woodrow Wilson wanted for World War One. So right now, I, our military is capable of handling global conflict, but it's possible, you know, if there's a, an impending conflict or one that does occur, 
that we could enact a draft again through Congress or the president. Why do you think it's only males that are forced or required to sign up for selective services? So, and this is my opinion, I think for one, it's just been, uh, it's a historical thing. You know, m- men have been fighting wars since the beginning of time and, and so have women in, in many capacities, of course. I think our society uh, has a set of values that sees men as war fighters, and that's how it's always been. You know, nobody's really, well, people are questioning that, of course. So it's just kind of the historical precedent that's been used so long that we're just, until now, we're starting to really question it, right? Yeah, and again, don't quote me on this here, but I think in 2016, there was a a bill in Congress that fell flat, but it was intending to, to open the draft or excuse me, the draft, I say selective service system to uh, register females as well for that. Yeah, that was actually going straight into my next question. If all combat roles have been open to women since 2016, I think it was kind of conjunction with that bill you were saying. Why do you think these women are not also required to sign up for the selective services? Probably has something to do with the, the roles are being filled right now, the ones that, that need to be. I don't think I know we have in the military a, a manpower. We say manpower. That's that's the term. Again, yeah, we're, yeah. we're a little behind on the times. <laughs> they, we have a, a retention problem. Not really a recruitment problem, but people get out. 75% of people do their first term, and then they, they get out of the military. So we have a problem retaining people. Right now, women make up 8% on the low end, uh, like in the Marine Corps is the, is the least diverse. We have 8%. Women and then in the Navy and Air Force, it's around twenty percent as of right now. I guess that's 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 what they want to fill, and that's what they have. Why do you think the armed services have a retention problem? There's a probably a lot of different angles to that. I think the uh, the old, you know, we're going to offer you uh, education benefits, you know, GI Bill benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, it may may not be working so well anymore, but really, I think it's just a culture issue, like a subculture problem, probably within the military. And then also our, our culture and our military has a little bit of incongruence, I'd say. Would you be willing to expand on what you mean by a subculture that doesn't really feed into retention? When you first come into the military, you're obviously low on the totem pole. You know, we have a there's a joke in the Marine Corps. The, the, one of the entry ranks is private first class PFC. And so we, we joke all the time that's perfect for cleaning. <laughs> right. So you're, you're, it's a not uncommon hate, you know, sweep this, clean that, watch this. It's not until around... Your, your fourth year when you get a rank that really gives you some real responsibility that just so happens to be the time where you sign up for a four-year contract where you have that decision to get out. So you're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, getting that responsibility, you know, you're not cleaning as much anymore. And then it's your just time to decide whether you want to stay in or not. It's, it's a tough decision to stay in or go to college, you know, you got GI Bill. So yeah. And why did you decide to stay in, if you don't mind me asking? Well, you talked about it in my bio. I had the opportunity to go into a sniper platoon, which is a very specialized career field. And I'm not going to lie, it was, it's a lot of fun. It was really hard uh, physically and mentally, uh, but it was also very re- rewarding. And I, I also got promoted a little earlier. I got a meritorious promotion. So I got some of that taste of responsibility early on, which made me feel a lot better about being in the military. If we were to base it off of your experiences, do you think that giving private first class or the people that are in their first term uh, more responsibility or more access to specialized roles would help with the retention issue? Yeah, and I think I think the military is working towards that. I know as far as the Marine Corps is going, we're really we're going to professionalize our force. We're slimming down a lot. We're changing a lot of the roles. Our, our current com- commandant, General Berger, he's, he's very aggressive about being, you know, progressing the military, especially, well, specifically the Marine Corps. As a matter of fact, today he uh, had a press release, I think. He said that he wants 
that the, mil- the Marine Corps to reflect our society. He- he's really adamant about making those changes and giving, opening up opportunities and, and changing some of that culture that's been holding us back for so long. And I'm assuming you would feel that that would open the door to more diversity within the ranks, including gender rules, right? Of course. The military has always been a, uh, it, you, you know, it doesn't seem like it, but we've always been a kind of the testing ground for society. You know, the military was desegregated long before segregation ended uh, in our society. And I think that might even have paved the way in some ways because you serve alongside people that you may not have wanted to be next to in society because of the way society views those people or, be, or what society is telling you. And then you go fight in a war with somebody and you realize that skin color or race, religion, any of, the, any of those things don't matter as much. And then you come home and your society is telling you, well, you guys can't be friends. And you're like, ah, I beg to differ. You know, I fought and bled with these people and it's been great. Like we we developed a bond that's that's stronger. Like I'm basically saying, I think the military sometimes precedes society. And this might be one of those times. How do you think requiring women to register for selective services would interact with modern day feminist movements? That depends. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of research on this topic and it depends on if you think being, being able to be drafted is indicative of equality or if that's just another thing that the government is trying to force you to do. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. It does obviously give the impression that you're being treated equally, but then at the same time, that equal treatment is putting you in a position where the government is now forcing you to do something you may not want to do. It's, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer. There's a differential treatment between the two genders, but people trying to get everybody to sign up for elective services is kind of setting everybody up for a disadvantage almost. In some ways, yes. And in some ways, you know, I, I met plenty of people. Uh, we had Veterans Day recently here. You know, we had the Veterans Day service uh, ceremony the other day here at the U.S. part of that. And there's a lot of Vietnam veterans that were drafted and they told me they would would have never thought in their entire life about serving in the military, but then they were drafted and they ended up making a career out of it and being very successful. And, and it does teach you a lot of good skills that carry over. I've, I'm a better student now because of my military service for, for sure, but it's not for everyone. It's, it's, it's a question of, could it be beneficial for you as an individual for society? That's a, that's a big question mark. So do you have anything you'd like to shout out or anything you'd like to mention? Can't really say anything offhand that I'd want to shout out. I, I think that my big thing that I would want people to know is that it seems like, and I've even aided in that impression, that the military is kind of this stagnant, you know, locked in culture, subculture, if you will. But I think it's very important for people to recognize that the military precedes society in a lot of ways in breaking down certain barriers. One thing that that's hard for civilians to understand is we have a lot of these a- angles. We have our, our social and moral code as a society. You know, we have our tactical code in the military, which is really to, to win our nation's battles, right? There's an intersection there and we have to find the correct angle. You know, we can't just make a decision based off of our society and then neglect our capability to defend that society. But we can also make decisions strictly to defend the society and then lose touch with our society at the same time. So it's, it's very complex and very nuanced. Uh, I think these kind of discussions is key to, to finding that nuance and finding what the right way forward is, you know, having an open mind towards those things. There was a big debate in the Navy recently of, of allowing, uh, when they opened gender roles or combat roles to, to females, they had a problem with submarines because they're, they're very small and very cramped. And they were government requires to have two different types of bathrooms, and then they have to have their own area to sleep that's private and, and change. Um, but there wasn't a lot of space for that. 
you can say, hey, we're going to allow you to, to serve on a submarine. But then we've also got to look at the, the proficiency and are we taking away from the capability of that submarine to do what the submarine needs to do? You know, are we moving food storage now to make to build an extra uh, birthing, an extra sleeping area? You know, so like that's that that nuance that I'm talking about. We have to always consider the tactical side and the social side, and we have to find the middle ground for that. Well, thank you so much, Spencer, um, not only for your time, but your service as well. You're very welcome. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. How would you like to be a part of the Long Story Short podcast? We have this commercial space for your advertisement needs. Become a sponsor. Reach out to our team today at contact at ourstories.com. That's C-O-N-T-A-C-T at O-U-R-S-T-O-R-1 E-S dot C-O-M. Thank you. Our second expert is Desiree Chavez, um, who identifies as Mexican as well as Native American and lives in Los Angeles. Lucky. Um, currently, they're conducting intel work in Washington, D.C. as part of the U.S. Navy, and they use the pronouns she and her. Hi, Desiree. Desiree. Can I call you Desi? Yeah, you can call me Desi. Okay, I'll call you Desi. How are you doing today, Desi? Um, I'm doing pretty good. I'm glad to hear that. Same thing as before with Spencer. Do you want to have a disclaimer? Yes. Everything that I say today is my own opinion and does not reflect on the armed services whatsoever. Just for the listeners, this is, <laughs> I wish you could see the setup. We might take a picture later. Um, we're using my phone and we're putting it next to her microphone because Desi, like we said, is currently in D.C. and we are in Utah. And we we're going to record it with a voice memo, but that didn't really work out because Apple is awful. You heard what I said. Just starting off, quick question. How has the draft been used historically? Historically, the draft has been used as just a way to get more people into the uh, services, just to have a stronger military presence to get our numbers up there. So we can have a, well, there's, there's strength in numbers. The draft really kind of forced the people to serve if you wanted to or not. But that made us a stronger presence overseas. Awesome, awesome. And what theoret theoretical situation would make enacting a draft necessary again? I believe that a draft most likely would be necessary again. Personally, I've seen a lot of commands being undermanned. And there's always this saying that we need more bodies, not just the Navy, but in the military. Um, I've seen that firsthand. And I believe that if in the future there, we went to war or, you know, there was a major conflict, a draft would be necessary again. Um, kind of expanding on that, can you tell me a little bit more about your experience as someone that identifies as a woman in the armed forces? Um, a little bit about my experience as a woman in the armed forces. I definitely see how men uh, see themselves as, kind of like more knowledgeable and superior towards women. I'm definitely looked down upon a lot and I'm definitely questioned in my um, abilities, especially in my daily line of work. I'm definitely questioned a lot. And I personally, I see myself as an understanding person, so I don't really take it to heart, but I definitely notice it. And I'm assuming that this is purely based off of your gender, not your actual abilities, nor the positions that you hold. I truly believe so, yes. 
Why do you choose to continue to be in the armed forces if you are facing this type of discrimination? Um, because I honestly, I'm doing it for myself. I find like the strength in myself and I love what I'm doing. I love the work that I'm doing out there and um, just the experiences that I get to experience. I don't let anybody else take that from me, especially someone that's going to be discriminating against me purely for my gender. That's a very powerful thing. Thank you, Desi. If all combat roles have been open to women since 2016, why do you think that women have not been required to register for the draft since then? I believe that women are not required to enroll for the draft because there's still that kind of line between uh, women and men that they still don't believe that women are capable of serving. And so we're not required to, but I still believe that there's still that line they believe that women are not fully capable as men are. Earlier we were talking with Spencer and he brought up the example of a submarine where they would like to have women also serve on a submarine, but that would mean more difficult because there are standards of having different sleeping spaces and different bathrooms. Do you see any validity in a comment like that? I do see some validity, but I also believe that it wouldn't be too much to make those uh, as just if they truly wanted of women to serve in a submarine. So it's along the lines of if it needed to be done or it wanted to be done, it would be done. But since nobody really feels the need or desire to, in people in positions of power, that that's why it's not done. And then that's why they come up with a semi-valid excuse of um, it would require too much space on a submarine. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. Just one last quick question here. How do you think requiring women to register for selective services would interact with modern-day feminist movements? Um, I believe it would be a step forward. Honestly, it would be acknowledging uh, women's abilities to serve just as good as men. I believe that it would be uh, a step in the right direction. Honestly, just acknowledging that we can serve just as good as men. I mean, there's women serving right now doing the same jobs as men are and have been and we're doing it just as good you know even (laughs) yeah someone would say even better but i ain't gonna say actually i am um (laughs) i wasn't gonna say it but (laughs) i got you i got you don't worry about it um i just want to give you the space now does do you have anything or anyone you'd like to shout out or mention or bring notice to um, honestly, my mom, I would love to shout her out. She is, she has, um, she's the one giving me the motivation to, to really join. And she supported me all the way through. Um, and she even supports me now. I'm so far away, but she still makes an effort to come see me. She really is my, um, my hero. <laughs> That's genuinely heartwarming. Um, thank you so much, Desi, not only for your time, but your service as well. We're all rooting for you and supporting you and all the women in the armed services. Thank you so much for having me and just really listening to what I have to say. Of course. I hope you have a good day now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone. Back here with our panel. We're going to go around round robin real quick. Uh, names, pronouns, majors, and one fun fact. Jorge, poli he, him. 
I ain't got a fun fact. I was learning about that part. All right. Um, my name is Haley. I am a electrical engineering major. She, her pronouns, fun fact. Um, you don't do, do kickboxing. <laughs> yeah, you yeah kickboxing. we just figured that out today, actually. Yeah, you do kickboxing, <laughs> boxing, and jujitsu since I was 15. It's been on and off throughout the years, but yeah, I've That's picked intense. up a good amount. Can break, break arms, ankles, wrists. <laughs> Fun times, legs. <laughs> wow. Maya's scribbling down notes furiously. I don't know why. I know. <laughs> They're also blushing. Anyways. I'm Riley. My pronouns are she, her. I'm currently studying peace and conflict studies and sociology, and I work with K through two students. That's a lie. I work with K through six students. <laughs> I was like, that's a very narrow. Uh, ben? Hi, my name's Ben Moore. My pronouns are he, him, his. And I am currently in Washington, D.C. this semester doing an internship. I should, um, can I add a disclaimer? So I work for a national security organization, so I should probably disclaim that the anything I say here are my opinions and my opinions only and do not represent the views of the American College of National Security Leaders or anyone else that I work for. Awesome. Get your bread, Ben. Uh, my name is Maya. I use they, she, he pronouns. Um, I'm studying history, teaching, and political science. Um, I don't know. Fun fact. I had Why my friend fact? cut all my <laughs> I, I didn't actually think you guys <laughs> were going to do fun facts. I had my friend cut all my hair off over the summer, um, and I had pink sideburns for a minute, but it's a good time. Um, pink sideburns. Okay? Should we go back <laughs> around and do it without a fun fact? Nah, leave it in. <laughs> um, okay, Maya, what did you think about the first interview? Oh, you're calling me out. Um, I, I mean, I do agree with him. We were talking about this earlier. Um, I, I agree with Spencer in a lot of ways in that historically the military was socially ahead of the U.S. Um, however, I think recently there's been a lot of issues with trans folk in the community specifically and i think that that is something that he certainly overlooked um and i think desiree did a really good job of being when uh we asked her about spencer's submarine thing that he didn't think that the military would have the ability to create what is necessary in to be submarines. fair to be fair i don't think he said that the military didn't I mean, he just said it he would said be it, difficult. He said that it was a nuance that they would have to navigate between civilian lines sure. and military lines. I wait. What? When you, I mean, when you get in the military, you have the in the submarines, you have the government that's like, you have to have separate sleeping quarters, separate bathrooms, and then that would just be impossible in the cramped space of a submarine. Um, and Desiree brought up the fact that like maybe it is possible, and so I think that is food for thought. I was worried that we're kind of misquoting mm. Spencer here. He was saying that it'd be more difficult, but he was using that as an example for the larger issue of having to navigate social norms as well as okay. tactical restrictions or tactical. Um, okay, I see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Not to. No, no, no. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ben, what did you think? Yeah, I thought that they were really interesting. Same, you know, 
just the um yeah i thought that um what spencer was talking about in terms of the military being socially ahead i think in many ways like maya said that he is that he's you know correct though a lot of their um issues with the lgbtq community recently have certainly um not been ahead of some segments of society but yeah i thought that they were pretty solid so we all are in the same boat that we believe that not having women in the draft is antiquated, right? I mean, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And I think Spencer did a bring up a good point. Like, it is kind of rough to be in the selective service committee or pool. I think it's rough to be in the military. Yeah. Just, just in, general. in general. Yeah. It's tough to have to sign up for selective services, but if we truly believe that genders are equal and then everybody's got to take a take a slice of the crap pie um outside of the lgbtq plus community though i was thinking a lot about sexual assault mm. in the military and how mm, that impacts yes. women and how the military socially is not ahead of the rest of the united states in those terms especially with the amount of cover-ups and the amount of times that women have been pronounced suicidal. Um, I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, there was a case about that like a year ago, right, in Texas? Yeah, it was a major case. I forget what I feel so bad. I don't remember this woman's name. But it was where I believe she she was sexually assaulted and she tried to come out about it and she kind of got like pushed down by her superiors as well as um, I, I don't, I believe she went missing or she mm -hmm. ended up dying. Yes. Um, and it was from what I understand, I could be totally wrong and we're going to get crap for it. It was her superior that sexually assaulted her. And then mm -hmm. he's the one that killed her, hit her body and then eventually killed himself. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that soldier Vanessa Gain, <laughs> Gain in Fort Hood. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I feel yeah, like, I agree. I feel like if you're going into like any type of military service and you're just like, you hear these things, you're like, I mean, not only are you worried for yourself, but you, some people at least like have family members that are like, are you like, they're like pressuring you not to do it. Cause they're like, why would you want to do that? And potentially have to worry about this. And I think there's always risks with job, but I think that's definitely a lot more traumatizing. It's something to consider. And it's not necessarily something that somebody wants to go into knowing all of those factors that play into it. I had recently heard that the statistics for sexual assault in the military for women is one in three. Can you imagine having a 33% chance of being sexually assaulted? I mean, that's kind of how it is right now, in all honesty. Like, <laughs> isn't it like, like, how many, what, what the percentages for like, how many women are like sexually assaulted or like sexually harassed each year? Like nine a out lot. of 10? I mean, I'm like yeah. nine out of 10 or something um, like especially that. Especially on um, college campuses, yeah. it's really high. What? The sexual assault rates. I feel... I could be totally wrong. I'm just a civilian, uh, just putting that out there. But from what I understand, the military and armed services are formed in a way of absolute. Uh, my friend that is in the armed services says it's a dictatorship. It's not democratic. The commands and the orders come from the top and they go from the top down. Um, and having so much control over the people under you, if you're someone that's a sexual assaulter, uh, gives you a lot of power and it can kind of lend itself to sexual assault. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why we see so much in the military 
we're putting the military on blast, and I understand that. And I know that some people might take issue with it, but I believe, and I think we all believe here, that it's important to talk about things like this. There are things that have to be talked about in order to have a full conversation about something. There are things that you can't just blow over. Me, sure. me and Maya, a little earlier, we were talking about uh, trans folks in the military and about how it's been one of those issues. I guess women in the military as well, but yeah. I feel like more uh, trans folk about how it's become a politicized issue where it seems to swing with every uh, presidency. Trump wasn't down for it. Obama was. Mm -hmm. I don't know where Biden is. Well, I know you see now in his house. I'm a Biden supporter, but uh, un <laughs> unwillingly, unwillingly. I don't, okay, I don't want to pick him up the wrong not, way. Okay, let's not. Okay. I mean, well, so, I mean, Don't Ask, Don't Tell wasn't repealed until Obama. So even if we're just talking about the queer community, you have a lot of contention there. And the fact that, um, I mean, it's true that the military was desegregated before a lot of the U.S., um, but I think you still have some more socially political problems. Well, to be fair, though, um, during World War II, there was still segregation. Mm. You'd have separate, uh, is, it, is the word platoons or units? Yeah. yeah. There, was, there was a story about um, <laughs> in England, um, there was a bar and since England didn't have segregation, they were allowing black and white servicemen, American servicemen into the bar. Um, and then the white servicemen got frustrated and it started a whole fight. And so it was one of the few times that there was a fight between people of the same army from the same nation on allied territory. But there's your fun fact. <laughs> well, I don't know if I would call it a fun fact, but it is a fact. <laughs> Do we think that there is the political will, you know, within Congress and the executive branch, Department of Defense, to um, require women to register for the selective service? That's a great question. Um, I feel like this is one of those things where there's not a lot of political winning with it, like <laughs> trying to force women into the selective services. I don't know if there's going to be anybody that is willing to put their political career on that. I mean, I, I with modern feminist movements, I think there's a lot of women out there who just want the the equality, right? And I mean, I'm one of those people who, and I don't identify as a woman every day, but some days. Um, and so I think that there's like, um, we want equality. And in order to have full equality, then that would require a register for the draft. Because if that's what men have to do, then that's what I want to do. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Absolutely. That's a great point, Maya. I also think there's just not a lot of traction behind like political leaders. Like there's not a lot of people outwardly saying, like, let's have women in the draft. It's more of like kind of either not talked about or kind of ignored in a sense. There's like traction obviously from the people but there's not enough from people who can actually make a change, not saying that people can't make a change, just like the people who are in power aren't doing a lot to make it possible. The other point I is agree. that, sorry, Ben, I cut you off. The other point is that oh. in terms of changing political dynamic or military dynamics, the big emphasis right now is trying to get out all the alt-righters and those folks, the, the extremist conservatives, 
I remember that was a big thing after January 6th, which we don't talk about for some reason, but <laughs> that's another point for another day. Yeah. Um, just, I'm, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that having women be registered in selected services is not the most pressing issue when it comes to diversity or military change. Yeah. I also think yeah. a lot of the question stems from how do you feel about the draft in the first place? I mean, exactly. I mean, I don't want to sign up for selective services because I don't believe in the military <laughs> or like yeah. forced drafts. Like, I don't believe in that. But if it's happening, then I want to be a part of it because I want equality. So I don't know. It's just like a if I have to, then I will kind of thing. And I feel, yeah. from my perspective, cis hetero male uh i feel like that's the same boat that we're all in right we we don't want to do it but we got to do it um and i guess it just feels weird to say women should be forced to have to do it too you know i don't think it feels weird it is it feels weird to me i'll put it like that uh. I um I agree with you guys. I also think that the military and the way that we wage war per se in the 21st century is shifting in such a way that I'm not sure we will in the near future be having a major land war within the different planes, whether it be cybersecurity and drones and whatnot, that that war the way we wage war is a lot less like manpower required and so i'm not sure that even if somebody's trying to make the case for like the necessity of the draft i'm not sure that having that many more bodies is really necessary yeah spencer brought up the point that there's 1.2 million active duty members in I the armed services right that, now yeah. yeah and the selected services or the draft has started to have a million people ready to fight and he was talking about the whole issue about uh, retention but who, who who's being retained, I guess, would be the question there. I mean, if you're being, trigger warning, if you're being sexually assaulted at work, then I don't know if I would want to stay there either. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> we love inequity. We love inequity. All right. On that positive note, I think we'll call <laughs> it for today. Uh, thank you for everyone yeah. being here today. Have a blessed day or don't. It's your choice, I guess. Bye. Bye. And that's been a long story made short. Thank you for listening. Long Story Short is an affiliate of Our Stories and University of Utah Student Media. And please make sure to list our social medias. Our Stories, O-U-R dot S-T-O-R one E-S on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and soon to be TikTok. And you'll also find our handles on the description of the podcast below. Thank you. Special thanks to Connor Nygaard and Parker Service for audio editing, Maya Harris and Riley Atkinson for the intro and cover graphics, and the University of Utah.